Welcome back to Michael Lindsay in Context. We are continuing our great discussion with Mark David Hall. He is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and a faculty fellow at the Honors Program at George Fox University. He's also got two exciting projects, one with George Mason University and a forthcoming internship with Princeton University. If you did not hear the last podcast we had with Mark David Hall, go back and listen to the introduction, how we talk about that. But we want to pick up where we left off. Two articles primarily we're talking about in this interview, the tilting at windmills, the threat, quote unquote, of Christian nationalism, which dropped in February of this year, and then a newer article on March 3rd, a very short one called, Is David French a Christian Nationalist? Manufacturing Christian Nationalism. And part of the being maybe even provoked to have Mark back on the broadcast was an article he posted called Jesus and John Wayne Among Deplorables. And it's about a book written by uh, Kristen Demuse, which is entitled Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. I'll just cut to the chase. It's a horrible, horrible argument. She may have some valid observations about things, but the logic and the way she gets to those conclusions are opinions. They're editorials. They are not grounded in fact, which is part of the reason this provoked me to get Mark back on the broadcast. Okay, with all that, let's continue in your article, Tilting at Windmills. We left off talking about Rush Dooney. Let's go forward a little bit and talk about Christian Reconstructionism, because this is another term that we hear about a lot, and it needs definition. Sure. So the, the followers of Rush Dooney are generally oftentimes called theonomists, right? God law or Christian Reconstructionists, by which they mean they want to reconstruct society on thoroughly Christian principles. And so in their minds, things like homosexuality would be illegal. A male homosexual who engages in homosexual acts would be put to death. Adultery is illegal and would be put to death and this sort of thing, right? And so this enables the critics of Christian nationalism to say, look, this is what people on the, in the religious right, these are what the Christian nationalists more broadly want. And they tie in claims of racism and sexism, some of which are matters of definition, right? I think usually when we think of the sort of sexism that we would all condemn, we think about a company who might not hire a thoroughly qualified female employee because they favor male employees, right? And I think all of us would say that's wrong. But, you know, they can point to things like Rush Dooney arguing that a man should be a leader within the house, that women shouldn't be a, a minister within a church. And they define that as sexism. Well, that's fine. Just make it crystal clear what you mean by sexism. They tar Rush Dooney with the um, tar of racism, which I think is really unfair. But he does say some things. He says there are forms of slavery that are biblically acceptable. Now, he goes on to say um, the race-based chattel slavery we had in the United States is not one of those forms. But still, you can say, look, Rush Dooney was in favor of slavery. And theonomists are in favor of slavery. And when you start making these sorts of arguments, the vast majority of Americans saying, wow, I do not like that. I don't want these people who believe in putting adulterers to death and in racism and sexism to govern. That's a bad thing, right? So it's attempting to paint a broad, many, many, many Christians, over 50% of Americans as these sort of theonomists, whereas I think the numbers are probably in the hundreds. You know, very now, few people actually embrace these ideas. Now, you explain how this kind of became attached a little bit to the Republican political scheme of the day. 
That's right. So even the polemical critics know that most people don't know who right. Rushduni is. They aren't reading Rushduni. And so they say, aha, he had influence through other people. We know, for instance, that Francis Schaeffer read yes. Rushduni, used his works at Labrie. You just mentioned that you had read some of his yep. works in seminary. Now, I think we have to be real careful what exactly we're taking away from this, right? I'm sure you read all sorts of people in seminary that you disagree with and that probably your seminary disagreed with, but you just want to know the arguments for Calvinism or Lutheranism or whatever else, right? Francis Schaeffer, just to stop with him, clearly condemns theonomy. And according to his son, he thought Rushduni was clinically insane. So I think we have to be real careful there. You know, they, they, they then make these claims that, well, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, David Barton, these folks were influenced by Rushduni. But the argument is thin. There is virtually no evidence. Let me just, it might seem a little bit in the weeds, but I think it might help to give a sense of how these people are operating, right? So it's Michelle Goldberg, I believe, who says, David Barton, the popular Christian author, might not exactly be a Reconstructionist, but he's influenced by Rushduni. He cites him in some of his works. Well, there is a verifiable claim. What does she do? She cites an essay written by Stephen McDowell that appears on David Barton's website, Wall Builders. Well, right away, you got to say there's a distinction to be made here. David Barton is not citing Rashtuni. Stephen McDowell is, right? Right, right. Um, she goes on to make you know broader claims about his reliance upon Rashtuni. She apparently didn't even try to ask David Barton. I sent him an email. I said, David Barton, are you influenced by Rush Dooney? And he responded, and I quote this in the article, I've heard the name, but I don't know his works. I've never read him before. Catherine Stewart actually attributes the Steve McDowell article to David Barton. It's just factually inaccurate. You can go to the Wall Builders website and see this. When you turn to the essay, and again, this might sound like it's down in the weeds, but we're talking about things that could be verified that were not. She says that the author of this essay completely relies upon Rushduni. His work is completely taken from Rushduni. In fact, only six of the 41 footnotes are to Rushduni, and they all involve his treatment of the biblical laws involving slavery. Most of the article is about America's founders' approach to slavery, none of which draws from Rush Dooney. I actually asked Stephen McDowell about this. I, I don't know him from Adam, but nonetheless, I just sent him an email and said, hey, what's the deal here? And he says, you know, how influential was Rush Dooney on you? He said, well, he did influence my thinking about these biblical passages uh, having to do with slavery, but nothing else. And I give several other examples along these lines where people that are claimed to be influenced by Rush Dooney explicitly deny it, and their work gives no evidence of it. You can critique David Barton on other grounds, perhaps, but to critique him as someone drawing from Rashtuni is just factually inaccurate. You know, it reminds me of Titus chapter 1, verse 12, where the quote is, Cretans are always liars. And uh, I, I was I was at Moody at the time, and uh, they had put something out, a sermon I had probably preached at Emmanuel, and I quoted Henry Nouwen. And I had this attorney, if memory serves, write a a very indelicate and nasty letter to me and to the Institute about, you know, I shouldn't be quoting this guy that's allegedly a homosexual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
of course we had you know we had folks at the institute that you know dealt with these matters but they brought it to me and the writer said yeah we're going to quote titus 112 <laughs> Cretans are always liars because the point is you can cite someone and it doesn't mean you endorse everything the person i mean how many of us have quoted nietzsche or <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean, it's you know you can say something good that doesn't mean you align with it okay let's i'm off in the weeds again in this whole section and I, i'm glad you bring up david barton because he does a lot of great source work, but there are times where he, you know, am I correct in saying he's a Dominion theology guy as well? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure about that. Yeah. I've read his historical works on yeah. religion in the founding and religion throughout American history in general. And I would say he's far more often right than he is wrong. Yes, um, He's not a trained historian. Yeah. And sometimes he makes claims that I think go a little bit too far, yeah. sometimes uses sources in a way I wouldn't. And so other Christian academics have taken him to task on some oh, yeah. of these, these things. I think unfairly so, honestly. But in terms of his work on American history, is it, far more right than it is wrong. Let's continue in your article. And, and you've already talked about this several times, about how many Christian nationalists are there. You've mentioned several times that these, you know, they're 52% of them. And, and you're saying it's in the hundreds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, that specific that claim specifically was about um, reconstructionist or theonomist okay, followers me. of Christianity. I, I think that's in the hundreds. I do think Christian nationalism is a thing. I'm going to co-author yeah. a book on the subject with John Wilsey of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and so one of our tasks is coming up with a. I think, an accurate definition of Christian nationalism. And then hopefully, I'm not really a, a social scientist, but attempting to measure it, right? Maybe partnering with some real social scientists to try to get a sense, okay, what percentage of Americans are Christian nationalists? And then to what extent are these Christian nationalists racist, sexist, militarist, and the whole nine yards? My suspicion is you do have maybe 15 to 20 percent of Americans who improperly conflate God and country. And, you know, so I, I might attempt to correct them on biblical and theological grounds, but my sense is that most of them, the vast majority, are not also racist, sexist, militarist, and I think that's just a, a libel or slander. In your article, you have these six statements. Let me, let me set it up. You write Whitehead and Perry rely on a battery of survey questions given between 2007 and 2017, 10 years. They ask respondents to state whether they disagree, are uncertain, agree, or strongly agree with the following statements. One, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. The federal government should advocate Christian values. The federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. And then you say the responses to statements three are reverse coded. I want you to talk about that by the authors so that strong agreement with the proposition is recorded in the same way strong disagreement is recorded for the other five. We need to talk about this because when surveys are done, when Frank Luntz does surveys, this aggravates me no end what you just said. So explain this to our folks. The response to statements three are reverse coded. Tell us what that means. So these are six statements. So let me just say this, and I appreciate your skepticism of surveys. This Baylor survey on religious life in America, I think, is an excellent survey. It's properly done. It's stratified random samples, a large number, the whole nine yards. So I think it's a good survey. 
within this survey, and Whitehead and Perry did not invent these statements. These are statements that were already in the survey. They're using these to measure this idea of Christian nationalism. And so the idea is if you basically can earn between zero and 24 points, depending on how you answer these questions. Usually, if you strongly agree with all of these questions, that gets you four points. The one about the strict separation of church and state, if you strongly disagree that we should have the strict separation of church and state, you earn four points. So that's a little bit different, but it's, it's all legitimate, I think. So you can earn up to 24 points. Let me just say, if Christian nationalism means something like the improper conflation of God and country, these statements could measure that depending on how you understand them, right? I think the first one actually gets at this, that the government should declare the United States a Christian country. If you strongly agree with that, that probably is evidence of a a sort of Christian nationalism. All the rest of them could be viewed as favoring Christianity, right? Religious monuments should be allowed on public land. Well, if you're thinking only Christian monuments, yeah, that's favoring Christianity. The United States should adopt Christian values. Well, if you're thinking somehow uniquely Christian values, maybe an established church, yeah, that would maybe be evidence of Christian nationalism. The problem with this, I suggest, and this is the second article you've mentioned, many of your listeners probably know David French. He's an um, attorney, a journalist, He's kind of unpopular on the right for now, in part because he has been so critical of Christian nationalism. And I think he buys way too easily into some of this stuff without thinking critically about it. But I I have this little article, is David French a Christian nationalist? Let me just say up front, in no way, shape, or form, is David French a Christian nationalist? And yet in that little article, I show that I think he would score 20 out of 24 points on the Christian national scale. And that suggests that the the scale is profoundly flawed. If I can run through some of the questions um, and explain why I think that, that is the case and why specifically David French would get a lot of points, if not exactly 20, take something like the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state has been used, this argument has been used to say, for instance, that churches shouldn't be given tax-exempt status, that Quaker pacifists shouldn't be exempted from military service, that students going to Christian colleges shouldn't receive federal aid, that a World War I-era cross on public land needs to be tore down. That's what advocates of the strict separation of church and state want. And so I and David French would say no. That is a horrible idea, and certainly the Establishment Clause doesn't require it. The government shouldn't do this. We should be free to allow college students who go to Christian colleges to receive money from the federal government. Islamic students who go to Islamic colleges should similarly be free to receive money from the federal government, Jewish students, the whole nine yards, right? Should there be religious images, religious monuments on public land? I would say absolutely. It's perfectly appropriate to leave this World War I era cross in Bladensburg County. We don't have to tear it down. And by the same token, when Ohio makes a Holocaust memorial, it can have the Star of David in it, right? The U.S. Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C. has all sorts of religious images and scripture and that sort of thing. These things are appropriate. Christian values. When I think of Christian values, I think of things like the protection of innocent human life, religious liberty, equality under the law. These are great things. Now, these are not uniquely Christian values. You could embrace these if you're a Muslim, if you're Jewish, if you're secularist, right? Well, and let let me interrupt. Let me interrupt for just a second. When I read the federal government should advocate Christian values, that means a hundred things, you know, to 10 people. That's such a wide open concept. What's a Christian value? And you've articulated some that we would cherish, but 
what else does that mean to a person who lives in Birmingham, Alabama versus Seattle, you know, Pacific or, or New York for that matter? I mean, that would mean a completely different set of categories. It's very, very ambiguous. And so I think, you know, they're measuring something. So Whitehead and Perry define Christian nationalism, and I give their definition, I quote from it, Basically, it's an improper conflation of God and country that is a toxic mess of racism, sexism, militarism, and that sort of thing, right? And here's where I just don't think these statements measure what they think they're measuring. And as evidence, uh, among other things, in addition to my own self and my argument with respect to David French, 65% of African Americans are Christian nationalists. Well, almost right away, you know, Whitehead and Perry have to say, well, obviously they aren't racist, so Christian nationalism means something different to them than it does to these white evangelicals who we bring our faith into the public square to oppress racial minorities, to oppress women, and this sort of thing. I just think that's an unfair move. I don't think it's accurate. The last three, the federal government should allow display of religious symbols in public spaces. Number five, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. And finally, the federal government should allow prayer in public schools. And again, you you say it more neutral zone and clarifying it ambiguous to say the least. I just read these things and I go, this could mean so many different things to so many people. I mean, you mentioned the sort of post-millennial and so forth. The success of the U.S. is part of God's plan. God's plan within the theological confines that I run means 50 different things. (laughs) You know, when it comes to politics in the country. So that's one of my problems with any of these scales. I I see what you're saying from a statistically empirical, I get numbers. My argument is those things don't mean to those participants what they mean to the researchers. I think that's exactly right. The researchers are putting meaning to them that the statements don't actually measure. Again, it is possible that someone answers this in in a way that would privilege Christianity and maybe even white Christianity above all others, right? Some racist outside of Birmingham, Alabama that believe it's God's will for African Americans to be subservient to white evangelical. Yeah, maybe that person exists and answers the question in that sort of way. My sense is, and you and I have run into evangelical circles pretty much our entire lives, right? And maybe not exactly representative evangelical circles, but this description, racism, sexism, militarism, and the whole nine yards, describes almost no one that I know or have engaged with. And I've lived in places like Oklahoma Mm -hmm. for many, many years, right? So I'm not just in some sort of elite ivory tower. Let me suggest one of the moves they make that I find just profoundly problematic. And here's where things might become true by definition, right? And so they point out, they kind of recognize, yeah, a lot of evangelicals are motivated by the protection of innocent human life, right? Protecting unborn babies. Now, that would seem to be a a good thing, right? This is promoting justice and equality. It would seem. You could read it that way. However, in their hands, this is simply and only about the control of women's bodies. So you and I are pro-life because we want to control women's bodies. That's just a completely unfair characterization, I think, and ignores reality that women are just as likely to be pro-life as men. Mm -hmm. So the pro-life women are all about controlling other women's bodies. This, This just seems an absurd claim. But in their minds, by definition, if you're pro-life, you're about oppressing women. And this is where, okay, fine, if we accept that definition, maybe you're onto something, but I thoroughly repudiate that definition. That's just unfair. And even if you're pro-choice, you should be able to see how that's an unfair characterization of the pro-life position. 
but they can't give that ground. It's the same way they've euphemistically changed it from pro-abortion to pro-choice and to women's mm-hmm. rights because you can't. You have to extinguish the idea you're murdering a child because of abort. I mean, what just happened in recent discovery in Washington D.C. with these aborted fetus. I mean, you know, the outcry and hue is largely from the pro-life community. You know, it's ironic. I should live so long that I see Catholic young people being <laughs> the most ardent. <laughs> In the pro-life movement, where evangelicals have you know been active but somewhat asleep by comparison, let me take two sidesteps. Okay, these are two very different topics, but I want to get your take on them. One is racism, and one is the term evangelical. How we've used it historically, and what's happened to it. So you've mentioned racism a number of times, and we had a delightful guest, Monica Dusson, on recently, and she and I talked about this. Race became a strictly defined African-American versus everybody else, as opposed to Scripture, which talks about ethnicities and dialectos, especially in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't refer to race. And this is such a lightning rod word today. And I have African-American friends that I think would adhere to the idea, no, there are two races, African-American and the rest of the Europeans. Sure. Well, I, I think, you, you know, the, the biblical words and whatnot far better than I do, but that sounds right to me. Clearly, heaven will be populated with people from all ethnos, right? And I think it's fair to say that God loves all of his children equally. Clearly, it, it seems to me, genetically, if you compare, you know, a white person, African-American person might be genetically more similar than a African-American person, another African-American person. So there's a degree of social construction here. Most people who talk about race, um, I, I do think, are thinking at least in terms of white Caucasians, Hispanics, and African Americans. Obviously, you have Asians out there as well, but oftentimes the critics of racism don't know quite what to do with Asians because they tend to be overrepresented in Ivy League schools and in high-tech firms and that sort of thing. And so it oftentimes does come down to a focus on especially African Americans, I think, right? And African-Americans, we have got to recognize, have been horribly treated throughout American no history. Right? No doubt. Absolutely. From the dreaded Middle Passage to slavery to Jim Crow legislation and extrajudicial violence throughout the late 19th, early 20th century to continued ongoing discrimination. And I think it's fair to say, you know, people do studies of folks, you know, they mail in resumes to job openings and some without mentioning race, but some seem to be African-Americans and employers favor, at least slightly, those that seem to be white. So I think we have to recognize that race is a problem. It continues to be a problem in America. Again, I think Christians have excellent reasons to reject and repudiate racism, regardless of what group it's against, right? And I think it's just naive to think that African-Americans can't be racist. It, It seems to me racism is a sin, and we can all fall into that sin, and we need to look into our own hearts and we need to avoid it. With all of that said, let me let me do mention, and I know you know this, I, I think Christians have been at the forefront of fighting slavery, Jim Crow legislation, and racism throughout American history. And I don't think there are good reasons to believe that Christians are more racist than non-Christians or people of other faiths in America today. But the reason I asked the question, though, is in, in the literature we're talking about in your articles and other articles, when we talk about Christian nationalism in some of these groups, this is in the face of African-American. I mean, in the most vitriolic sense, right? If they're a white nationalist, obviously they're anti 
African-American. No, that's right. And that's why Christian nationalism oftentimes slides into white Christian nationalism and even into white male Christian nationalism. And, you know, that's fine. You can talk about that if you want. But even so, I'm not sure how many people embrace what the critics would call white male Christian nationalism. I I think it's, you know, there there are white Christians who are racist and sexist and maybe both at the same time. But I think this is a tiny number, right? And I think there's all sorts of people who are atheists or embrace other faiths that also fall prey to these sins. Uh, Sin is no respecter of persons in this regard. And the reason I want to talk about evangelical, because just in my tour of duty, I've been struck by the number of, and I don't mean to vilify younger men and women, but the way they have shifted positions and nomenclature is, at one point, it's disturbing, and at another point, it's just intriguing why did all of a sudden evangelical become a bad word and we have to, you know, jettison the language? No, that's a great question. We should acknowledge, first of all, that there are a variety of different definitions of evangelical. Under some definitions, as few as maybe 6% of the American population is evangelical. Under the best sort of definitions, you used to have around 28% of Americans, broadly speaking, are evangelical. And this includes plenty of African Americans and Hispanics who are also evangelical. The simple answer to your question, I think, is that Trump obviously reached out and embraced some evangelical ministers, Jerry Falwell Jr., Paula White, and others. And um, those folks were reasonably called evangelicals. And evangelicals seem to lend support to the Trump campaign. Trump is very unpopular with many, many Americans, especially elite Americans, right? People in the media, people in the national media, people in Hollywood, people in the university. And so you have a lot of attacks. Oh, these horrible evangelicals are racist or sexist. They love Donald Trump. And I think this makes many people pull away from that label, especially if you're in elite circles, right? If you're a college professor, if you're mm-hmm. in working in Washington, D.C., you might not want to be associated with this horrible category of people who are racist, sexist, militarist. And so you might have the same exact beliefs you had three years ago, and yet you might just want to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, something like that. Now, there are those Americans out there who are perfectly happy to claim the label of evangelical. I think these are folks who tend to be in more rural areas, who tend to be supporters of Donald Trump and that sort of thing. But that just might reinforce why elites are less likely to want to be called evangelicals, even if they're still accurately described as such. But it goes back to your observation about Rush Dooney, and it goes back to my observation about you know pro-abortion versus pro-choice and pro-women, because the nomenclature has to adjust to the argument. Because if the argument, it starts infringing on, well, I don't hate blacks. I don't hate women. You know, maybe I did hold my nose and vote for Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean I'm associated with him. And every, well, I don't want to be called evangelical. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we're always on our heels, Mark. I remember Carl F. Henry. I was privileged to hear him speak many years ago as a evangelical Bible-believing pastor in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I was invited to this Baptist gig at DBU. And he spoke to a bunch of Baptist pastors, and that was a whole sociological education for me (laughs) in the world of Baptist pastors. Nonetheless, he made the comment, he said, why do the liberals always get the buildings? Yeah, no, it's a good good question. Bingo! It's, It's the same thing we're talking about at principle level. If this is vitriolic or offensive, or now it's what triggers you, we got to run the other way as opposed to saying, look, I can take courage and say I'm an evangelical. 
and I don't consider myself rural or backwoods or I'm not an elite, but I don't consider myself an idiot. And I would say, no, I'm an evangelical because that word is the euangelion of the Bible, mm-hmm. that it's the good news of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, we do need to do, I mean, your books are doing homework. You're helping people define and understand things. And this is where I'm frustrated with my own kind. Why do we run away at the first sign of a fight? You know, to say, okay, we have differences. Let's talk about what we mean. Anyway. Another Michael Easley rant, but I want to get your take on it. No, that, that's a good rant. Let me just real briefly address, and this will not come as news to you, of course, but I think when evangelicals retreated from culture in the 1920s and 30s, and we founded our own Bible schools and Christian colleges, and we just didn't go to work in Hollywood or for the New York Times, evangelicals ceased to be a major presence in the academy. We ceded the commanding heights of culture, I think. And so the culture makers... And I'm talking here about the, the broad ones, right? You know, not your podcast, obviously, but the New York Times. And, you know, compared to your podcast in the New York Times, the New York Times has a lot more influence. They're the ones redefining evangelicalism. And so I think this is a call for evangelicals. We have got to enter Hollywood and the mainstream national media and the academy. And I think we've done a good job of that over the last 40 years. Again, I, I think it's still secular progressives who control so many of the commanding heights, but we have to do our best to push back against that. And of course, one strategy is to have alternative media streams, which is one of the things you're doing, I assume, right? By helping to provide context to these broader national and local issues, you can help those who listen to you better understand them. Well, that's the hope. And I think that's what your own shift from pure academia to more consumable media. You know, Carl Truman, we've had on the broadcast, and his books are remarkable. But I also had to fold my arms and go, the seventh grade educated American can't read this book. You know, they won't read it, number one. They can't read it, number two. And it's a hard bridge. I mean, this is where, you know, the gifts and the calling of God are a wonderful thing if we understand the, the way the body works. I need people like Mark David Hall who can think about these things from an academic, very logical, well-researched world to help a hack guy like me say, okay, let me give you the bottom line of this because I don't have time to do what you do 40 hours a week, nor do you have time to do what I do 40 hours a week. Right. It's different spheres, right? Let me set this last one up because I know David French. I wouldn't call him a close friend, but I've run in circles with him in the past. You characterized him well. He has made himself a lot of enemies. I resist the Never Trumper and the Lincoln Project kind of labels, but that seems to traffic in some of these guys. That uh, I have one of my closest friends who teaches at a university. He is a Never Trumper, and we have argued about this insanely. And I said, given the option, you can have a protest vote, and I'm a, I don't despise that. But it's a throwaway vote. H. Ross Perot is evidence. It's a throwaway vote. And until we get to a three-party system that's more viable, this is where we are. And then I often go back, what president that Christians voted for in the past would check all these boxes? Ronald Reagan, who many would call one of the better presidents in our history, certainly didn't have a perfect past. You know, I don't know they own slaves, but he did a lot of things that weren't good. And so you have to kind of shrug your shoulders at some point and go, well, none of us are qualified. You know, I think that's exactly right. I believe Reagan was divorced twice, right? Married to his third wife and 
we evangelicals don't like that sort of thing. And yet he was a great president. I think it's fair to say not perfect, of course not perfect, but great in terms of the policy that he did. You know, it was pretty easy for me to write for the Oregonian, which is an Oregon paper. There was no question where Oregon's electoral votes were going to go. If I lived in Michigan or Wisconsin or Ohio, it would have been a really hard decision. And I probably would have voted for the lesser of two evils in that context. And and again, I get that. I'm not criticizing people for, I I just find, well, one of my statements summarily is we're all consistently inconsistent. You know, we we have, we have these rails that we we're going to die on, but oh, over here, we, we have no problem rationalizing that all that kind of side trail over there. David French, is he a Christian nationalist? What you're doing is you're taking the primary criteria from the two authors, help me out, Whitehead and uh, Perry, Perry, Mm -hmm. and using their criteria for defining it. And you're saying by their terms, he would be. And your article is basically saying time out, not so fast. No, that's exactly right. And one of the things I reference in that is a report about two months ago by um, the Freedom from Religion Foundation and the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Legislation. Now, some of your okay, listeners... Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait. I read that section like three times. I went, what? These two groups align on this issue? No, that's right. And it's important maybe for some of your listeners, you hear Baptist yeah. and you might think Southern Baptist. This is a group of Baptists thoroughly committed to the strict separation of church and state, right? They believe the Bladensburg Cross, this 1925-era cross, should be torn down or, or, or something like that. Um, just an extremist position. And so these two groups did a report on Christian nationalists, and it's full of, of, of nonsense, right? This is just you know, probably the last set of groups whose report you'd want to read if you're looking for a fair treatment of this phenomenon. And right. um, this ties into some of my complaints about their understanding of religious liberty. I don't know if you might want to chat about that a little bit. In these two organizations that you talked about in, in the article about David French, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Freedom, BJC, and the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and that's the Andrew Seidel organization, right? Right. So these unlikely bedfellows, at least in name, have partnered together what does that mean for, you know, the average person like, like me who's trying to make sense of all this? Sure. Well, as you know, the, the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So both of these groups take a strict separationist interpretation of the Establishment Clause so that they believe, for instance, that it's unconstitutional for this 40-foot cross to remain on public land in Maryland. And if you support this cross remaining in place, if you support the Star of David in the Ohio Holocaust Memorial, this means you are at least in part a Christian nationalist. And I want to say this is ridiculous. The Bladensburg Cross was found to be constitutional by a vote of seven to two at the U.S. Supreme Court. Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, two fairly far left Jewish justices, said that the cross gets to remain. Are they now Christian nationalists? That's a ridiculous argument, I think. One of the points I make is, look, I know exactly where David French stands on these Establishment Clause positions. If he answered the survey honestly, this gets him a lot of points towards being a Christian nationalist, but in no way, shape, or form is he this this negative understanding of Christian nationalists. To shift to religious liberty, one of the things Andrew Seidel argues is the Alliance Defending Freedom is a Christian nationalist organization. 
Well, that's quite a claim. The Alliance Defending Freedom, of course, protects the ability of all Americans to act according to their religious convictions wherever possible. They defend Christians, to be sure, but they also defend Jews. They defend Muslims. One of the tricks of my little David French article is David French was at one time an employee of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Presumably, the Alliance Defending Freedom is filled with Christian nationalists, so does this suggest he's a Christian nationalist? No, not at all. And Jay Sekulow's organization, Oh, that's uh, right. ACLJ. Yeah, he was a senior lawyer for them. And ADF in no reasonable way can be defined as, as sexist or militarist or racist. They're defending right. the ability of all Americans to act upon their religious convictions, which leads me to a major problem I have with Whitehead and Perry's book. They complain that these Christian nationalists are trying to redefine religious liberty to mean something other than the freedom of worship. This gets things exactly wrong. Remember the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. From 1791, pretty much to the present day, religious liberty has always meant more than the freedom of worship. It definitely encompasses the freedom of worship, but it also means that you get to act upon your religious convictions in the public square. And to say that religious liberty only means the freedom of worship, which the Obama administration did all the time, by the way, is an attempt to constrain religious liberty. It's a very inappropriate attempt to constrain, as many, many people on the left recognized well through the late 20th century, the liberal justice mm-hmm. William Brennan, Bill Clinton, when he signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's only over the last 20 years that people on the far left have started to attempt to redefine religious liberty as a freedom of worship. And that's a definition that Whitehead and Perry accept without any criticism or thought. I have not said what I have been saying the last 18 months ever in the pulpit or radio or platforms, but I think there's so much evil afoot right now behind the curtain in the administration, in policy, in politics, in positions of power that, I mean, some of these things are inexplicable apart from saying there's evil. I tell our church often, I think half of them think I'm crazy. I'm going, you know, in our lifetime, these egregious overreaches, you can't explain it. What's the net benefit of some of these from a sociological or political outcome? There are no benefits. And again, I'm being the opinion guy now, not the journalist. I want to talk about, because you referenced this in your article, the removal of religious art. What I find striking, and when they were there was this big move to tear down all of the statues that had to do with any prior slave owner. Right. One of the things that, that concerned me was you're inadvertently taking away the history to tell the story of what was right and wrong. So, yeah, you might want to change the name on these schools or change the name or pull this statue down in this little square. I mean, goodness, you know, your folks have been in D.C. We lived in D.C. for 12 years. There wasn't a corner in D.C. that there wasn't a statue, a monument, a bench, a plaque that had a history behind it. And if you took uh, 20 minutes, you'd learn something you did not know. All those names of those streets and cities are there for a reason. And there's an opportunity to teach our checkered history. You take all these slave owner statues down, you have erased the history under the pretense of doing the right thing. Am I crazy? No, I, I think this is exactly right. First of all, we have to recognize if the test of who we are going to celebrate in public places is moral perfection, this leaves us with exactly zero 
no person whatsoever, right? Not the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., not any president, not any civil rights activist, not any pro-religious liberty, no one, right? And this obviously, it seems to me, can't be the standard. I do think it's very reasonable because public monuments are, in a sense, something we're celebrating together. And so we might want to have a discussion about some of these folks. And in some cases, maybe a monument might be taken down and moved to a museum or something like that. But this should be a reason community discussion. It's certainly not an act of a violent mob, which we've seen far too much of here in Portland, Oregon. I live right outside of Portland, Oregon, tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln, for goodness sakes. Ulysses S. Grant. It just makes not a lot of sense, unless your standard is moral perfection, but that's a silly standard. Well, and again, maybe some need to be you know removed and put in a private space, but I still think a plaque alongside of it talking about we talk about revisionism. Well, let's tell the truth. Let's tell the truth about these. And I think most Americans can handle that. We have a checkered history and there, there, there were no perfect Americans. Well, I would talk to Mark David Hall all afternoon, but he's got to probably go to work. He is the Herbert Hoover distinguished professor of politics and faculty fellow in the honors program at George Fox university. We have all of his V10 information on the website, his newest book forthcoming. When will this one drop? It's called Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. It will come out in the late fall, and it's with Fidelis Publishing, which is there's a new conservative imprint, Post Hill Press, and Fidelis is sort of their religious imprint within their imprint. But you can find it easily enough just by keeping your eye on on my name on Amazon. We'll get you back to talk about the book. How about that? Is that a deal? That'd be fantastic. Thank you very much. God bless you, Mark. Always, thank you so much for your time. And again, I appreciate your labors to help guys like me understand these issues. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.